and not holding our breath for such an event, please open your copy of the scriptures with me and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5, I'll go ahead and set the scene while the uh, technology hopefully catches up with me. We left off last time at a bit of a, a cliffhanger, if you recall. We, we left off in a tense situation. Let me just briefly recall what that was. Nehemiah had started rebuilding this wall. But when the two antagonists in the story, Sanballat and Tobiah, who again I affectionately remember as Horus and Jasper from the 101 Dalmatians, um, they are, they can't, this can't stand. They have to have a plan of attack. They have to thwart this. This, uh, this would threaten their power in the region. It would do a lot of other things. And so they come up with a strategy. They come up with a strategy, and, and because they surround, they surrounded that area, the Ashdodites and the Ammonites, and then the Edomites to the south and Samaria to the north, they were literally, I mean, they were surrounded geographically, and what they're going to do is a sneak attack. So Nehemiah had to take some steps to make sure that this wasn't going to derail the entire thing. So he kind of paused the building for a second, and he got people with swords and spears and shields, and they put them in the lower parts of the wall, and they waited. And then once Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshub the Arab found out that the element of surprise had been lost, they kind of gave up for the moment. Uh, but ultimately, the people went back to work on the wall, but they went back to work with a couple of differences, a couple of key differences. Number one, they were armed. They were armed and ready to fight. They had their sword strapped at their side, and they had some a strategy in place. They had a trumpet player who was going to blow the trumpet, and when everyone heard it, they were going to come gather, and the Lord was going to fight for them. So a little bit of a strategy there. And then they kind of had a shift, some shift work going on where everyone was locked down in Jerusalem. They weren't going back home because you didn't want to get killed, but also if they planned a sneak attack in the middle of the night, you wanted to have your fighting force ready. And so Nehemiah says no one even changed clothes. I mean, it's a very, it was that level of high alert. So we have to understand the tension of what that would be like. Are we going to be attacked at any moment during shift change here when you're sleeping? What could happen? Because, unfortunately, at the very worst time, i.e. right now, Nehemiah is going to have to deal with some internal conflict. So far in the story, all of the conflict has been from uh, without, which, which, is, which is great. But now, right in this moment, and you've got to be thinking, he has to think, oh, you're kidding me, this has to happen right now? Out of all times for this to happen, it happens when we are on high alert. So I want to help you feel that tension before we dive into the rest of the story. And so what you're going to notice in Nehemiah chapter 5, the first five verses, that there are three serious problems. All of this tension is still in the background at this point to all appearances. Three serious problems. Here they are. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives, which would be a little bit odd to include here, but they would have been the ones keeping the home and managing things while the men were out building the wall by and large. So their wives had a better perspective probably than they did on some of the complaints that are about to be lodged. But notice the, the, the complaints are against their Jewish brothers. This is critical, critical for understanding this. They are bringing these things to Nehemiah, but they're not coming at Nehemiah. They're not coming at Nehemiah. They're not criticizing Nehemiah. They're not accusing Nehemiah. They're bringing some charges against their Jewish brothers to Nehemiah for adjudication, for a solution here. Then you have the first set of problems in verse 2. Here's what we learn. There were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. First problem, I've got a big family. Guess what that requires? Lots of food. Guess what I can't do while I'm building the wall? Go get that food. And I can't buy it because it's too expensive. So we're, in a, we're seriously in a crisis here. I can't feed my family, here's a rebuilding project. I understand that it's justified, but 
Something's got to give. That's the first set of problems that comes to him. And then verse 3, you get the second set. There were also those who said this, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So here is a reference to a famine, and commentators go back and forth whether this just refers to the general, you know, the scarcity or the difficulty of procuring grain there in the region, or whether there was a more general famine in the province beyond the river. It's probably likely it's the second one, and that explains why the price of grain would be high, right? Because in a famine, price of food goes up, and it's bought by the wealthy people, and the poor people are just left to kind of fend for themselves. Whatever you make of that, what they're doing is they are mortgaging their field. What that means is think of like a HELOC loan on your house. You know what a HELOC is? Home equity line of credit. You are taking out a loan with your the equity in your home, the ownership of your home as collateral. So if you don't pay that loan back, you give up your property. And the idea is because of what's going on here, they're struggling to make those payments. They've taken out a loan so they can continue to live, but they are struggling to make these payments again because they're working on the wall. They're working on the wall, and they're not, they, they, there is no one, uh, or at least they are not there to work their fields and do all the rest like they would have. That's the second complaint. They're struggling to pay their creditors. And then there's a third group. This is the third group starting in verse 4. First two complaints, third complaint. There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, and yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Now, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and vineyards. Okay, let's back up for a second. This is the third challenge. So the Persian tax, this would be a standard tax. Any king would have a tax on the people. And generally, uh, this would be, especially in this context, on the produce of one's field. But what they're saying is, uh, because they don't have it, they are borrowing money to pay this tax. Again, they are borrowing money in order to pay this tax. And they're having trouble paying it back, so much so that we are that they are selling their sons and our daughters to be slaves. To be slaves. This is debt slavery. So don't think of, again, slavery is a lot of things. Think of you know, post the, the, the antebellum South, you think of the movie Amistad, Denzel and the Tear. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about debt slavery. I can't pay my debt, so I come work it off. I can't pay you, so I'm going to work for you. And you, hopefully you heard that in the scripture readings. Okay? So that's what, that's what it's talking about specifically. He said, we, have, we, are, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and then... It says, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, which sounds very redundant and causes most interpreters here to think that something more is going on. Because the Hebrew here in Esther actually has a sexual overtone. It could be a more grim interpretation. One interpretation is that it's kind of maybe their daughters are being given as a second wife to other households. The other one is, is, is some, uh, uh, given to maybe gratify some kind of sexual desire or do something questionable. You think of David uh, in First Kings. You have he has this little girl cuddling up with him, cuddle, cuddle buddy to keep him warm. It's weird. It's something his wife should be doing. Um, perhaps something like that is going on. Okay, go look at that Abishag or Abishag back in uh, first couple chapters of actually First Kings one. Is that what's going on? Something is going on because he's already said his daughters are enslaved. Probably in the next clause, he doesn't just repeat the same thing. It seems like he's adding something. But they can't do anything about it. Why? Because they don't own it anymore. The loan's out on their property. They can't, you can't lose your land because if you lose your land, you can't ever get it back. If you, if you put a son or a daughter in debt slavery, you can redeem them. But not if you're not working your land to make money. Tough, tough situation. All three of these things combined, and they all come to Nehemiah when the city is on high alert and say, can you address this huge economic problem? Well, I would have said, like, no. No, I wouldn't have said that. But that's what I wanted. I would have wanted to say, can we wait to the crisis to be resolved here? Have you looked around? 
But he knows that yet again, he is in danger of losing his workforce, either to desertion back to their fields or morale is just going to be sapped. Again, another critical, critical point. The wall has not been completed yet. Will there be another half wall? I will say that in the background here, there is the suspicion that the year of Jubilee was not being observed. The text does not say that explicitly. We can't know that for certain. But it wouldn't be surprising if that were the case, given this context. So that is this additional crisis on top of the crisis. And then so what, um, what does Nehemiah do? Because if you don't handle this correctly, the whole thing could go down the tubes. Well, what he does is nothing short of brilliant. Nothing short of brilliant. Read, it, read with me. Verse 6. I, Nehemiah, was very angry when I heard their outcry. I took counsel with myself, which by the way, <laughs> it's a funny translation, it's a very poor translation. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that he was looking for wise counselors and looked in the mirror. It's like, oh, there's one. You know? <laughs> Uh, the, the Hebrew here refers to someone who I'm contemplating something. I thought carefully. I, I, I've kind of retreated to my own thoughts to, to consider this, you know, very clunky English translation. But anyways, I took counsel with myself. I thought about it. I pondered these things carefully. And then verse 7 tells us what he does. And he does it in the context of a larger public gathering. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. Now, this is a genius strategy for a couple of reasons. Number one, he could not most likely pursue a formal lawsuit within, that, within their, the, the system that they had set up for a couple of reasons. Number one, it takes too much time. And number two, some of the people who are being accused would have been the magistrates who are making the rulings. Whoops, that's problematic. Okay, that would probably be problematic. But also, because they're being accused in such a public sphere, it would be very difficult for them to tell a story or lie, stretch the truth about what's going on. Well, we aren't actually doing quite this, you know, when the people who are being oppressed by whatever they're doing are standing right there. Okay? And then finally, there would be public accountability regarding whatever verdict was reached, because it was declared among a ton of people. So this is Nehemiah's plan, and you're going to tell, he adds another element to the plan that makes it even, even better. We'll see in just a second here. We, as far as we are able, verse 8, and I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back, Hebrew word, redeemed. We have redeemed. We have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. The Hebrew there is a little bit difficult, but here's what's going on. Remember we read in Leviticus 25, this idea of slavery, if a, if a stranger or a sojourner among you is rich. So we have people on the outlying provinces or in the country rather, not in the city proper, but out here, not a province, but out in the rural areas. Um, and, Perhaps there is someone who is wealthy, who is a Samaritan, or who is an Ashdodite, or, an, or whatever it is. And they've in the Pentateuch, in the law of God, there is some provision for this. And it's likely that some people have ended up selling themselves, or perhaps some of their children, to survive, to literally just not die. It's the second best, uh, second worst option. Excuse me, second worst option. And what Nehemiah suggested is people have come together and have redeemed these folks from the nations that are right around Jerusalem where these people are living. To the best of our ability, we've redeemed them. We've bought them back in accordance with the law. We understood that they've been sold. We understood why. No one's upset about it. We've been able to redeem them. And yet, you're turning around and doing the same thing, but inside Jerusalem or inside the nation. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, to recall from Leviticus 25, and your brother beside him becomes poor and sell himself to the stranger or sojourner with you, to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, 
he may be redeemed. And so maybe the objection in Nehemiah seems to anticipate is, well, we're not selling them to the nations, we're selling them to one another. This is like an in-house operation at this point. In-house operation. He says, you are bringing about the taunts of the nations by this. This isn't, this isn't better, this is worse, at least at this time. You're getting, you're getting bought and sold and all the rest by your own team. And the nations are laughing. Look, that's exactly what he says. Let's continue. Oh, no, before we continue. So he tells them this charge, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but even you sell your brothers, do they not be sold to us? And what's the response in this huge public assembly? Nothing. Silence. There wasn't anything to say. They got totally called out on the carpet, dropped the mic. Occasionally, pastors will get together and have little pastoral roundtables and, and pray for one another and you know troubleshoot difficulties and all the rest, talk about things. And at one of these, apparently, one of the pastors said, maybe he was just tired of hearing people talk about my church. Like, my church, at my church, we're doing this. At my church, we're doing this. At my church, we're doing this. And this guy said, it's not your church. You didn't bleed for it. You didn't die for it. And you're not coming back for it. And everyone's like, <laughs> silence. No one had anything to say. Next guy introduced himself, like, oh, at the church, I have the privilege of serving as a pastor. I, uh, you know, it's it funny. But, 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 there, but the, the, sometimes something gets delivered and there's just nothing to say. And, and that was one of these times. And it wasn't just a case of maybe poorly phrasing something. Like this brother kind of, I think, maybe over-indexed on that correction there. But uh, this was something that was truly tragic and it was wrong. It was contributing to a crisis. That's what it says. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Look, they're watching us do this. And then he adds one more genius move. Verse 10. Moreover, listen to what he says. I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. He includes himself in the indictment. Now, this is not only remarkably candid and vulnerable, and it seems to have some precedent from chapter 1. Because remember in chapter 1, he included himself, I and my fathers of sin. Perhaps this is what he was talking about. It's not clear. Nehemiah hadn't been there for very long. He's been in Persia. So he hadn't had some really intense involvement in this. But he nevertheless includes himself and his brothers as a part of the problem. And the genius of that, of course is that he is not creating an us versus them in the public assembly, being the one bringing the charges. He's saying, I'm accusing myself with you. I, I understand. He's, he's creating some kind of solidarity with the people with, uh, toward whom he is bringing the charges. And so what happens? He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. What did they say? How is this going to go over? Did it work? Verse 12, Then they said, in response to Nehemiah, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you Say, what a reply. When Nehemiah says, okay, it's time to double down. One more opportunity to not be serious about this. No, we are serious. We will do what you say. Great, call the priests. Get the priests over here. Because that's what happens. I called the priests and made them swear to do, this is taking an oath, swear to do as they had promised. And then Nehemiah in line with the prophets, actually performs a sign act. He performs a prophetic sign act. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And the idea here is you would have things that, are, uh, that were in your clothes and it would sit there and you'd go like this until it just kind of flew everywhere. 
It looked a little bit chaotic, but everything came out. And the picture was, if you do not keep good on this oath to do what you said you're going to do, may this happen to you. May you be emptied by the judgment of God. This is serious. He's not playing around. And guess what? There wasn't anyone who said, oh, you know what? I mean, I'm going to kind of like do a take back. I used to play chess. And if you made a bad move, you might plead for mercy. Can I take that move back? Um, but that's not, no, one, no one makes a take back here. They double down. All the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now that is a remarkable difference from what we are used to in the story of Israel, if you've been following the story, the historical narrative at this point. Wow, what a tense situation. What a proposal. What a plan. What delivery. Fascinating, effective, marvelous. And then in verses 14 down through 19, we're going to get this kind of autobiographical parentheses here. The autobiographical parentheses is going to talk about a longer period of time, just kind of make a more general statement. But here's essentially what he says. He was appointed to be their governor. Remember, you had Zerubbabel before him and Shesh Bazar. It was actually before Zerubbabel. And then there were a bunch of, there's other folks that were not named. He's going to refer to them in just a second, but he says that I was appointed to their governor, verse 14, and then importantly, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. What does that mean? Well, a regional governor obviously was entitled to collect tax for the Persian treasury, but he also had the right to collect money for his personal treasury to fund part of his lifestyle, but particularly his food and drink. And what Nehemiah says is for the 12 years, me and my brothers, we didn't accept any of it. We did not take advantage of that because we did not want to be a burden to the people. Verse 15, the former governors who were before me, and this isn't a reference particular to Zerubbabel, but other governors that aren't even named in between there. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily rations 40 shekels of silver, and even their servants lorded it over the people. So it was a very top-heavy system is what he's saying. And to a people who, was, who were already struggling and are already, were already encountering some of these problems before Nehemiah even got there, he's saying, listen, I resolved to just not do this because it would just add to the burden of the people would just add to the burden of the people, so we didn't do it. I persevered, verse 16, in the work of the wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So as some kind of regional figure, you would have important people, nobles, who would uh, dine with you at the table, and the king was expected to entertain those folks, as well as foreign dignitaries who would come in and sit with the king. And so he stewarded this position well. He didn't he wasn't so spiritual that he wasn't willing to do some of these things that were technicalities for someone in a governmental role like him. He did this he did this well. And notice what he doesn't say. Because there's but he doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and go to the extreme. He doesn't say so we're all just going to fast and do the very bare minimum. How do we know that? Because of what comes next. What was prepared for Nehemiah if he didn't take the governor's allowance? And what was prepared, presumably, at his own expense? Not exactly starvation here. Verse 18. What was prepared for me each day was one ox, six sheep, six choice sheep, birds, and every kind of wine. All kinds of wine in Abundance. Of course, all kinds of wine in abundance, right? He was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He's not drinking box wine from Walmart. He says, if we're going to skimp on everything else, it's not going to be the wine. Every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance, he would get a wine refill on his skins. Presumably, all this is out of his own pocket. And Nehemiah was independently wealthy. That seems to be confirmed, the fact that he was giving loans as well. He had to be wealthy to even do that. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He said, I had the right to do this. The letter of the law so that I can do this, but I didn't. I didn't because I thought it would be too heavy a burden on the people. And he ends with something that might sound to us egotistical. 
But it's important. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And if you read that too quickly, like, oh, Nehemiah, oh, you must think you're big time. Huh? You've done a lot of good, huh? You in it for yourself? But it clarifies here why Nehemiah did what he did. He didn't do this just out of charity. His coming back to Jerusalem was not a humanitarian effort. He didn't do it solely out of pity. He did it for God. He did it for the people of God. And he's asking God to remember that, just like the psalmist. Remember, remember, remember. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I am trying to serve you here. I'm doing the very best I can in very difficult situations. And I, am I getting everything right? No, probably not. But please remember me for my good is what he's crying out. We have an amazing plan that's been implemented. We see Nehemiah's generosity and some of his discernment here. As the governor, things seem to be things seem to be going pretty well. And then, just like last time, the camera zooms out. And it zooms out. And who do we see on his balcony? They're thriving. Who is it in chapter 6, verse 1? None other than Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshub the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it. Although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. What are they going to do now? What are they up to now? Conspiracy number one. Conspiracy number one. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Hey, come and let us meet together at Hekepharim in the plain of Ono. You know, you've had a lot of success. We're all leaders. We just want to talk. We want to swap, swap best practices out here in the middle of nowhere. Come and let's come reason together. But Nehemiah, this again, he... This one doesn't pass the sniff test. He says, they intended to do me harm. And so what do you do when you don't have ironclad proof, but you know that someone's going to happen? You blow somebody off. And that's exactly what he does. Listen to what he says. He says, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm really getting it done here. We're doing great things. God is working, getting, I'm crushing it. I don't have time for a leadership conference out on the plane. But they don't take no for an answer. They don't take no for an answer. Verse 4, and they sent to me four times in this way. Quite persistent. Four times in this way, and I answer them in the same manner. No, I'm doing a great work. I'm not coming to the leadership conference. And in the fifth effort, they, they decided to change it up. They decided to lay their cards on the table a little bit more plainly. In the same way, Sambalat for the fifth time in verse 5 sent his servant with me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written the following words. It is reported among the nation, uh, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. So here's what he's saying. Remember, he's already tried something like this in the past. But now he, makes, he, he, he says something different. It's not just you're going to rebel. He says, you know, I've been hearing. You know how the, I've been hearing works. I've been hearing. People have been saying. I've heard. They're, they're saying. My buddy Geshem is saying that um, it's their understanding you're rebuilding this wall not just to rebel, but, man, some of this is getting to your head. Huh? You like building a wall and living in there and being the governor, don't you? I've heard that you're going to set yourself up to be king. 
Now, it would be a shame, Nehemiah. It would be such a shame if your buddy back in Persia heard that all this success was going to your head, and instead of just rebuilding your city for your ancestors and the sake of your God, you thought that maybe you're going to be top man on the totem pole. But that's what I hear is going on. That's what everyone believes. But I do have sway. So if you come out here, maybe we can talk it out. Come, let us reason together. That's what he said. Take counsel. So what does Nehemiah say? He says, of course not. No such things you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Hey, dude, you're making stuff up. I don't buy it. I don't care. Don't come talk to me. I don't even want to listen to this. I lost IQ points reading this letter. Goodbye. He's not having any of it. It's just a, uh, he just summarily dismisses it. He says, they just wanted to frighten us, verse 9. For they all they wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work. Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. Again, they just cannot stand the idea that Jerusalem, particularly the walls, would be built and finished. Nehemiah concludes by asking, strengthen my hands. Now, can we, just, can, can we just recap here? This man, Nehemiah, I'll tell you what. So he's got the building project. Then he's got oppression from the building project, the sneak attack. But then he's got the high alert phase where everyone's working with swords and taking shifts and sleeping and not changing clothes. And then he's got the problem with the oppression. And if that's enough, then he has a conspiracy against him. What else could possibly go wrong? Conspiracy number two. That's about to happen from the same folks, the same people. Let's read on in the story. Nehemiah comes back. He comes back. I guess the point was he never left. So he goes out, excuse me. Verse 10, I went out to the house of Shemaiah. This man Shemaiah was confined to his home. We don't know anything about Shemaiah except that he was a prophet. When he was a prophet. And he has a word from the Lord to all appearances for Nehemiah. He says, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. You can imagine Nehemiah going, you're kidding me. Like, can I please get a break? But I have to say, I am very... I am very thankful for someone bringing this to my attention. I, um, I, I deeply appreciate that. Thank you so much. And then he thought a little bit longer. And he thought, and he thought a little bit more. And this one doesn't seem to pass the sniff test either. And that's because it doesn't. Listen to Nehemiah's response to this quote, word of the Lord from this prophet. But I said, verse 11, he gives two reasons. He gives a twofold response, by the way. He said, should a man such as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? So the first half of his response is, listen, dude, have you, have you been around here the last couple months? Do I look like the kind of person who tucks tail and runs? Does that look like my M.O.? Does that look like what I do personally? I'm the governor here. What do you think that would look like me running into the temple and letting everyone get worn out? Does that, do I look like that kind of person? The answer is no. But secondly, he also says, how could I go into the house of God and live? He realizes his lay status. He understands he's a governor, but he is not a priest. One commentator spells it out very plainly. He says, Nehemiah is conscious of his lay status. The sanctuary was reserved for the priests because of its proximity to the symbolic dwelling place of God himself and the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Not only would Nehemiah have been legally in danger of death, but he apparently shared the view that direct contact with the divine sphere when in an unprepared state would lead to death. The verse thus sheds rare but welcome and revealing light on Nehemiah's respect and humility in relation to God. 
So he hears this prophecy proclaimed to him, someone who's trying to help him, someone who's trying to say, hey, the, the word of the Lord to, is, you know, is, the, well, God is clearly with you and he's using me to help you, which is a remarkable level of deception, obviously. And then in verse 12, we find out maybe what we thought to be the case all along. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. We don't know if this was one of those letter carriers who was coming in and out, and, and there was like a little contingency plan. If he says no this time on the way back, stop at this one dude's house. He's a sellout. Offer him a bag of gold and say, I've got a word of the Lord. We don't know how it happened, but someone had a conversation with this man. He was paid to give a false prophecy Probably so that they would go into the temple waiting for a trap to kill him. That seems to be the idea. Or at least no, at least it's, it's possible. At least it's possible. But they wanted him to be afraid and act in this way and sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So whether or not he's saying let's go into the temple and then will do something to him, which is possible. What is definitely the case is that they are trying to get him to be afraid, act in a particular way in sin, and Nehemiah triumphs. He says, no, I'm not doing it. That's not the kind of man that I am. Not the kind of man that I am. And then in verse 14, he closes with an imprecation that reminds us of what we heard in chapter 4, 4 and 5, this imprecatory prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also, and then we find out that, hey, this was just one example. And also the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who want to make me afraid. And so at the very end of this movement of the story, he sneaks in a detail that we only get one example of. He's got people out there opposing him, but he has to deal with people coming to him proclaiming the word of the Lord. And how do I know if this is Haggai or Malachi saying something faithful or this is one of these people lying? He has to discern this. It seems suggested here that this was not an isolated incident. There were other folks who were trying to deceive him. So he is trying to exercise discernment and follow the actual course that God would have him follow. So uh, that's, that's where, we, where we end that movement of the story. Are Sanballat and Tobiah done? Does the wall get completely finished? The doors aren't in. Do the people continue to respond with good attitudes, or does it all go downhill? It's a combination of all of it, both have to come back next time to resume the story. But let me just say one thing in application, leaning on my large A, little a, application distinction in Old Testament narrative. Um, and say something, I said the two questions we can ask is, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about God? And what do we learn about ourselves? God who provides redemption in Christ, what do we learn about sinful man? who finds redemption in Christ. And here's what I think we can learn. Our sinful natures often default to the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. You know, we see this back in the beginning of chapter 5, the first five verses. But I, I, I skipped over something, and I was hoping no one would notice so, I could have, so it would have rhetorical effect here in this moment. And that is... There's something marvelous, and that is uh, uh, that Nehemiah, when he responds, and even when they bring their charges, no one says anything about violating the law of Moses. There's no proof texting here. There's nothing about the law, specifically. No one says anything specifically about Leviticus 25. Nowhere is, Nehemiah does not make his argument based on you are breaking the law of God. 
Listen to this theologian. Put it in perspective. It's a little bit long, but we're just trying to, I'm trying to read it slowly. Just digest it as I read it. As it turns out, the loaning of money on pledge and the practice of debt slavery were not illegal as such. The laws, however, are concerned to protect the minimal rights of the very poor. Some of their stipulations were clearly unsuitable for the present emergency. But alongside these institutional safeguards, however, there was an attempt to build into the Hebrew law a more general sense of justice and propriety regarding the treatment of fellow Israelites. This comes to expression, among other means, by the repeated use of the term, your brother, back in Leviticus 25. And they say it here in Nehemiah 5.1. They argue that the Jewish brotherhood involves codes of behavior that go further than legal stipulation. This had also, of course, been an important element in the preaching of the 8th century Prophets, and it was apparently this which touched Nehemiah's conscience. Despite this, it should be noted in conclusion that there is no indication that the people complained or that Nehemiah reacted on the specific basis of the law of Leviticus 25. Nehemiah acted immediately and absolutely, apparently, therefore, on his own authority and without invoking any of the specific legal stipulations we must conclude that Nehemiah acted within the spirit and not the letter of the law. That is fascinating. This is the principle that will come to fruition in Christ, where we find out that love of God and love of neighbor are the two pegs on which all of the law hangs. There's always something more than following the letter of the law, but that's exactly what these people were doing. Hey! I'm, I'm doing what this says exactly. Okay, fact check me back in the Old Testament. Look, notice there's no fact checking going on. There's no proof texting. Nehemiah is appealing to something much more that is on one level, a deeper level than just what is on the surface of the law. And I would suggest that without carefully examining our hearts, a sinful heart, you and I have regrettably, even if it is redeemed, or being the process of restoration, when we try to obey and follow the Bible, and some people who are on the toilet side make no effort to follow the Bible, kind of the antinomian, super free grace, but I'm not talking about them. People who really want to ask, how should I live? How should I obey? How should I follow God? will often tend to approach things because of the sinful inclinations of our heart, like filing taxes, which I did last night, by the way. And here's the questions I ask. How much can I get back? And what's the bare minimum I can give you to be in full compliance? I want to be totally above bar with the way I do my taxes. I want to have a completely clear conscience, but I want to know how can I maximize my tax return and minimize my tax liability. That's a great strategy when you're doing taxes. Not so much in life before God. Because you miss the love of God and neighbor and the ethos of the command and prohibitions within Scripture. Why is that? Let me give you just a couple of reasons, a couple of examples, and see if you can see your heart ever falling into some of these patterns. One reason, perhaps, rules and laws, and just give it to me straight, are safer. They're safer for us. They make us feel safe. As certain personalities gravitate towards systems, I want to clearly define marching order. Because once we get past the hard and fast rules, it's kind of the wild, wild west. And it's a he says, he says she says, we're just freestyling and everyone's what's doing right in their own eyes. That's for them. Those are the two categories. Those are the only two categories. With rules, I feel safer in how I put my world together. Like it makes it, I can clearly, it just makes me feel better in my own conceptual space. These feel the, your default position here. If, some, if, you're, if you're someone who falls in this category, you're someone who's probably a rather safe than sorry person. Rather be safe than sorry. If the line's here, I'm going to draw a line here. It's just safer. If the technical line is here, and that's what the Pharisees ended up doing. They, people were going to them asking practical questions about how exactly far can I walk on the Sabbath? Or what exactly counts as work? Or what exactly, and they said, oh, 
here's what we do. Here's what the law says. Here's what we're going to prescribe, just so you don't go too far. We'll make a buffer zone. It's safe. Rules keep me safe. Also, it leads to thinking, if I do the right things, I get the right results. There's the mechanical aspect to someone who tends to follow rules. If I do it the right way, I'm the one who's going to get the right results or the blessings or whatever. And that all comes crashing down when you've lived a pretty clean life and then everything falls apart and you wonder what you did to deserve it. Right? Sometimes we gravitate towards the letter of the law and just knowing exactly what to do and doing it exactly like it is because it feels safer to us. The second one is it's easier. It's easier. Why? Because rule following doesn't take wisdom or discernment. It just takes knowing what the moral facts are. That's it. It takes knowledge, but it doesn't take wisdom or discernment. If you can just understand the language you're, you're you know, being communicated to in, you can follow a rule provided you have the desire to do so. But what it struggles to do is relate what someone has the liberty to do with what someone should do. What's the gap between what I have the ability to do and what I'm allowed to do by the letter of the law and what I should do? What fills in that gap is moral discernment. It's wisdom. And you have to be looking at the contours of the rules to know how to have the wisdom or discernment. If you fall into this category, you're someone who just wants to be told the right answer. Maybe you're someone who goes to count. You just want your counselor to tell you exactly what to do. You come to a pastor. Just tell me what I need to do to fix it. Just tell me what I need to do to fix it. Because then you don't have to think. You don't have to come up with something yourself. You just get a prescription from somebody. Social prescription, spiritual prescription, emotional prescription. Just tell me what to do. It's just easier. Then I don't have to think. Oh, I don't want to. This is so hard. It's easier to just get follow the letter of the law and just do this. Oftentimes, this one's going to heavily overlap with that first category. The number one and twos here are going to be two peas in a pod, oftentimes. The third one is markedly different. Sometimes we follow the letter of the law because we see the law of God, the commands of Scripture, as necessary annoyances. Necessary annoyances. So we've got a couple of really good playgrounds in Smyrna. Most of them have a fence around them. But let me tell you something. When we go to the playground... Everyone is aware of where the fence is, but no one cares what it looks like, the exact shape of it, anything like that. It fades into the background. It is the regrettable end of play. You can play until you get here, and then play seizes in this little subscribed area. Okay? No one cares about the contours of the fence at the playground. Once we know where it is, we can forget about it, really, so long as we stay inside of it. It leads to a kind of license that isn't looking at the contour of the law, so you can't discern the spirit of the law. You're not even looking at it. You're not even looking at it. So how could you bridge the gap between what you're technically allowed to do or should do and then what you're technically allowed to do and what you actually should do? Well, for that person, they're just the same. Show me where the fence is and then leave me alone. Don't come hold me accountable. Don't come asking questions. I didn't hop the fence, and there was nothing about it that said I couldn't build a gate in it. You tend to follow on this if, you're, if you tend towards individualism. Don't tread on me. Or teenagers, a great example. How far can I know I've got to get married before I can do all? How far can I go before that, though? What's the, where is the fence? Tell me the fence. Oh, this. And I'll give you an example here. I had a professor in seminary who was asked that question. He said, um, he said, he said, nothing laying down, nothing in the dark, nothing longer than five seconds. And you know what I thought immediately? I could fit a lot of sin in right there. That was a terrible piece of counsel. I can't believe he gave it to a whole classroom of students. But for someone who's looking for a rule, oh my goodness. How irresponsible is that? So you're telling me, so long as this, I can do whatever I want if I take five, a break every four seconds? Do you see how that could shipwreck somebody? Because they're looking for, the, 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 this is a necessary annoyance. I really just want to kind of get it out of the way, but it's here, I understand, I gotta love God and the rest. So here it is, I've got to be holy, but tell me what it is and just let me forget about it and just enjoy or indulge or whatever the case may be. 
It's a great way to follow the letter of the law. And then finally, you can follow the letter of the law because it aids you in selfish gain. That's exactly what's happening directly in Nehemiah's case. Maybe you inappropriately take advantage of situations and people with a clear conscience because technically you're not doing anything wrong. Taking advantage of people, taking advantage of situations with a clear conscience because you are technically not doing anything wrong. And if someone were to come to you and say, hey, brother, sister, you know, this isn't a good look. Optics on this one are bad. It's not clear that this is loving. Hey, fact check me, man. Look, show me the verse, huh? Show me the verse where it says I shouldn't be doing this. Right? Four reasons we may tend to follow the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. So I'm going to leave you with this closing quotation here. And this is a quotation that is blended together from two or three different people, so I don't know who to attribute it to. Let's just unpack it, though. The law is love's eyes, and without it, love is blind. And yet, love is law's heart, and without it, law is dead. The law is love's eyes. What does that mean? Say, I want to love God. I want to love people. Here's the thing. I've got a sinful heart. So doing life based on my intuitions with a broken heart by sin is a dangerous way to do things. Because it's just a a spiritual version of I'm going to do what seems right to me, what feels right, what feels loving, what feels soft, what feels gentle, what feels compassionate, what feels just. And so what gives tracks, what gives train tracks to love? It's the commands of Scripture. It's the commands of Scripture. It gives directions that help us see what this looks like. So we're not like the kid who was so had so much compassion on the fish that was drowning that it took him out of the water and put him on the beach. The kid was just following his heart. But he didn't understand. He didn't understand how to apply love. He didn't understand the world they lived in. He didn't understand how it works. He didn't understand that what feels helpful, what feels loving, what feels kind may not be. And sometimes it may in fact be. But that's why we have law. However, the love is law's heart. And without it, law is dead. You're a rule follower. You you could be the worst kind of legalist. The largest kind of Pharisee who's a whitewashed tomb. The the, the cup uh, outside is all clean. Inside is all dirty. You're doing it right. You show up to church. Woohoo! You, you, you pursue a, at least a version of sexual purity. You don't cheat on your taxes. You do X. You do Y. You do Z. You follow the letter of the law. And there's no heart in it. And if you're honest, you probably think it's a drag. And what Scripture would have us do is say, no, it has to be both. It has to be both. And we see this so clearly. Our, the tendency of our own sinful heart expressed here for the people of Judah in Nehemiah chapter 5. The law is love's eyes, and without it, love is blind. And yet, love is law's heart, and without it, law is dead. Would God give us grace to hold these two things together for the betterment of our own souls? Let's pray. God, we confess our own sinful tendencies and um, our abilities to rationalize and prefer ease and safety And to view your commands as burdens because they get in the way of what we want to do for our lives and our hopes and our dreams and our desires. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would reveal in us that you are not keeping good things from us. But you are helping us walk well in the world that you've created for our good, for your glory. That living in accordance with the commands of Scripture, Lord, is not just eating dry vegetables, but this is what it gives life. And it gives life because we're already loved and we desire to obey. We want to obey, Lord. We want to obey, and insofar as we don't, would you please convict our hearts? When we don't want to obey, we pray that you would quicken us. When we want to obey, we pray that you would give us wisdom and ask, what is the best way to do this in the spirit of love? 